morning and happy Easter. We're going to take a break from our series this morning on the 23rd Psalm to join people all over the world who are celebrating the most significant moment and the most significant person in all of human history, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever thought about how incredibly improbable it is that over 2,000 years later, the revolution of Jesus Christ is still advancing. This is a man who never traveled more than a few hundred miles away from his home, never married, never had children, never ran a business, never held political office, never made much money, never published a book. And yet, more songs have been written about him, more books published about him, more paintings painted about him and to him than any other person in the history of the world, and more people follow him than anyone else in the history of the world. This is a man who began a revolution in an obscure part of the world with just 12 ordinary men, one of whom would go on to betray him, 11 of whom would be dead within just a few decades of the start of the revolution. And yet here we are, over 2,000 years later, with 2 billion people all over the world who would claim to be followers of his. This is a man who never made it past the age of 33, crucified as a criminal by the massively powerful Roman Empire, and yet time is divided by him. B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord. The historian and science fiction writer, novelist, H.G. Wells once wrote this. He said, I am an historian, I am not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. Now, how improbable is that? How improbable is it that the world is huddled this morning around computers and TV screens while sheltering in place, celebrating a man who lived 2,000 years ago? But I tell you, the, the thing that I think perhaps makes it the most improbable that we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ today is that his own disciples the people closest to him regarded the news of his, of his resurrection. And let me say it in a way that I think will sound very familiar to you. They regarded the news of his resurrection as fake news. Fake news. His closest followers didn't even believe in his, res in his resurrection. So how in the world did we get from fake news to the greatest revolution that the world has ever known. Let me show you. If you have a Bible with you this morning or near you, turn in it uh, to the New Testament Gospel of Luke chapter 24, verse 36. Luke chapter 24, verse 36. If you have a digital copy of the Bible, find Luke chapter 24, verse 36. And what I want to do this morning is I want to show you how we got from fake news about the resurrection of Jesus Christ to today, where the whole world is celebrating His resurrection. Now, let me just set the context for this passage. It is Sunday. Jesus was just crucified on Friday night. The disciples are sheltering in place, fearful of their association with Jesus. They're confused. They're stressed out, trying to make sense of the last three years of their lives in light of the events of the last few days, trying to imagine what life is going to be like on the other side of this tragedy. And news has come to them that the crucified Messiah has appeared in person to two men while they were traveling on foot to a local village. Now, even as they're trying to make sense of this, Luke tells us something shocking in verse 36. Let's read it. Verse 36, he says, While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Now, try to put yourself 
uh, in their shoes. They've just seen Jesus gruesomely executed on the cross. We know from parallel accounts that the door to the room that they were hiding out in was locked, naturally, because of uh, their fear. There's no knock on the door. Somehow Jesus just materializes in the room with them, and then he says, peace be with you. Now, how would you have responded? How would you have responded? My response would have been like, whoa, this freaketh me out. But how about you? What would your response have been like? But if you look at the response in verse 37, what you'll see is that they regard the resurrection, as I said just a moment ago, as fake news. Look at verse 37. The text says that they were startled and frightened, thinking that they saw a ghost. And he, Jesus, uh, said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Now, in the margin of your Bibles or in the digital copy of your Bible, make a note next to that that says fake news fake news. Because as I said, that's how they regard this appearance of Jesus. They're not believing this. They're troubled. Jesus says that they are doubting. And in fact, I want you to see, I want you to be able to see the extent of their doubts. I want you to see their mindset. So let's do this. Look back at verse 10, uh, a little earlier in uh, this chapter, chapter 24. A group of women who were followers of Jesus had gone to his tomb early in the morning to prepare his body for burial. And when they arrived, to their surprise, the tomb was empty, and a couple of angels told them that Jesus was risen from the dead. And so they rushed to the disciples to tell them. Watch this, chapter 24, uh, back in verse 10. It says, It was Mary Magdalene, uh, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But notice this, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like, and there you see it, nonsense, like fake news. They're not buying this. That's ridiculous, they say. Dead men don't rise. Now look, regardless of whether you uh, believe in the resurrection or not, I think women who are watching or who are listening to this all over are, are saying, yep, that seems about right. Men not listening and being dismissive uh, of the women. And I would argue that this is probably one of the things that gives the account of the resurrection credibility. Now, uh, here's, here's something else I want to do this morning. As, as we look at how we got from fake news to the greatest revolution in the world, I want to show you how the disciples' reactions to the resurrection throughout this passage dispel some of the popular objections to the resurrection, objections that maybe you've heard, you've read about on the internet, maybe you even hold them uh, yourself. For instance, uh, many people, many people would say that uh, the disciples were scientifically unsophisticated. That would be an objection that they would have, that the disciples were scientifically unsophisticated. You know, there's this deeply held belief among the knowledge classes of our culture that Christianity is mindless. And that the only way that you could possibly believe in the resurrection is to replace intellect with blind faith. They would say, in light of our modern scientific worldview, we know that something like this uh, couldn't have occurred. Dead people don't rise. Science has proven, they would say, that the laws of nature can't be broken. But back then, back then, people were primitive. They believed in miracles. But wait a second. 
If the disciples were gullible because of their primitiveness, their reaction to this would have been completely different than the one that Luke records here. When Jesus appeared in the room, instead of being troubled and doubting, they would have been like, right on, we know you could do it. We knew you could do it. But that's not what happens. Instead, they respond just like modern people today would respond. They say, fake news, dead men don't rise. You see, it's unbelievably arrogant to assume that people in the first century were so primitive that they would gullibly accept the resurrection without question. See, they, I mean, admittedly, they wouldn't have called it the scientific method, but they had observed death, they'd observed burying people, they had observed the permanence of death, they understood death, they knew that people don't return from the grave. That's why the disciples don't buy this, right? Now, here's another objection that some people would offer. They would say, well, the disciples believed in the resurrection because they were theologically disposed to believe in the resurrection. But again, if that were true, if it were true that they were theologically disposed to believe in the resurrection, why their instinctive disbelief then? Why? We see, in reality, first century Jews were much less likely to believe in the resurrection than anyone listening or watching this online today because they did not believe in a personal uh, resurrection from the grave. At best, they thought that the resurrection was a collective event that might happen to all of Israel when God brought history to an end and the world was renewed. They were not theologically disposed to believe in a personal resurrection, just the opposite, which explains why the disciples react with disbelief when the women reported the news of the resurrection to them and when Jesus appeared in the room with them. You see, far from being gullible or theologically disposed to believe in the resurrection, This 2,000-year-old revolution that we are celebrating today actually started with a resounding thud and the cry of fake news, disbelief. So again, the question is then, how did we get from fake news to where we are today? Well, well, watch this. The disciples are going to move. They're going to move slightly. They're going to, their mindset is going to change slightly from fake news to this is too good to be true. Too good to be true. Jesus says to them in verse 39, he says, uh, look at my hands and feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of their joy and amazement. Now stop there. Just stop there. Again, I want you to see that there is this slight move here from this is absolutely fake news to this is too good to be true. I mean, even after Jesus had showed them the nail wounds in his hands and feet, they, the text says that they still didn't believe it because of their joy, and because of their amazement. They were saying, this is too good to be true. Now, this reaction brings up, I think, three more objections to the resurrection that you often hear. 
Besides the objections that they were scientifically unsophisticated and, and that they were theologically disposed to believe in the resurrection, some people would say, well, they, they were, the, the reason that they believed the resurrection is that they were psychologically traumatized. They were psychologically traumatized. In other words, they were so devastated by the trauma of seeing Jesus' gruesome death on the cross and by watching all of their hopes and dreams go up in smoke, uh, that in order to cope with that trauma psychologically, they hallucinated an image of Jesus. And look, that, that isn't such a far-fetched idea, because modern psychology has found that, that auditory and visual hallucinations can absolutely happen as a direct result of some kind of psychological trauma. Now, I'm going to come back and address that in a minute, in a minute, but there's another objection that I think is relevant here. Some people would argue that they were guilty, that the disciples believed the resurrection because they were guilty of confirmation bias. Do you know what I mean by confirmation bias? It's like you, you, uh, you cherry-pick information that supports what you want to be true, and then you ignore information that opposes what you want to be true. And again, uh, that's not such a far-fetched idea. That happens. Long ago, I had a guy uh, come into my office for counseling. He was, he was considering uh, marrying a woman who everyone around him was telling him was bad news. And I didn't know this particular woman, so I, so I asked him, what are some of the things that these people around you are telling you? And he began to list off some of the things that they were saying. And, and uh, they, they were pretty bad. And so I said to him, I said, look, if the people around you who care for you the most are telling you these things, you, you probably need to listen to them. And at the very least, put off getting engaged until you've had a chance to see her in a number of situations and see if she responds in a way that is consistent with the way uh, that your friends and family see her. Given what you told me, I think it would be a terrible mistake to marry this woman right now. To which he replied, you know... Everything you've said has convinced me that I should ask her to marry me. Now, see, that's, that's confirmation bias. I told him the exact opposite of what he concluded. Look, that, that's something, confirmation bias is something we've all been guilty of. We want something so badly we, we see what we want to see or we, we hear what we want to hear to, to, confirm, to confirm it. And so, again, not such a far-fetched idea of confirmation bias. But still other people would, would say that they were guilty of uh, groupthink. The reason the disciples believed the resurrection is that they were guilty of, of groupthink. And you, you know what that is. Groupthink is when someone in a group says something happened and the rest of the people in the group confirm it because they don't want to be inharmonious uh, or maybe they don't want to stand out. They don't want to be the, the odd man out. And to be fair, that happens all the time, doesn't it? Not such a far-fetched idea either, except, except, the problem with all of those objections, the problem with all of those last three objections to the resurrection, hallucination, confirmation bias, group thing, the problem with all of them is that verse 41 says that they don't believe what they're seeing precisely because, look at it, they realize that they want it to be true so badly. It's like it's too good to be true. Because of their joy and amazement, they still didn't believe it. 
They're smart enough to realize, whatever, whatever else you would want to say about these men, they're smart enough to realize that you can want something so badly that your mind can fool itself. So they're not hallucinating out of psychological trauma because they don't believe what they're seeing. Jesus is having to convince them it's really him. They can't be guilty of confirmation bias either because first, if they wanted to confirm their theological biases, they wouldn't be looking for a personal resurrection in the first place because they didn't believe in a personal resurrection. But also they're not confirming the resurrection, they're actually resisting it. And then finally, if they were guilty of groupthink, well, notice none of the disciples uh, believe it. None of the group believes it. None of them trust themselves because they think it's too good to be true. Verse 41, again, they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement. They doubted what they were seeing. Now still, still, I think it's, I do think it's fair to say that even though the revolution of Jesus Christ began with the resounding cry of fake news, I do think that we can acknowledge here in these verses that even though there's still plenty of doubt, there is some progress here from a dismissive, this is absolutely fake news, to this is too good to be true. There is movement. They've moved from fake news to this is too good to be true. Now, at this point, the focus of the narrative really begins to shift from the reaction of the disciples to the things that Jesus does to convince them that the resurrection is actually true. In fact, we've seen some of them already in Jesus inviting them to touch him and to look at his hands and feet. The question is, what is it that actually ends up convincing them to make the shift from, this is too good to be true, to, and maybe you would make, want to make a note of this in the margin of your Bible, that this is true, that this is true after all. Well, let's read from the end of, of verse 41. Verse 41, while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it in their presence. And he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then notice what it says. Notice what it says here. Verse 45, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And you see, there's the shift. There's the shift. He opened their minds and they moved from this is too good to be true to this is true. This is actually true. And I think two things happen here. First, let's just make the observation that dead men don't eat fish, right? Now, neither, by the way, do ghosts or spirits or hallucinations. All of this is speaking to Jesus' physical resurrection from the dead. Now, why is that important? Because here's, there's still another objection to the resurrection that I want to talk about, and that is that many people believe that the disciples actually experienced a spiritual, not a physical resurrection. Spiritual, but not a physical resurrection. And you see, like that's an appealing view of the resurrection to many people because it's a way of denying the, unique, the uniqueness and the exclusivity of Jesus. Because 
For Jesus to be the only way to eternal life, he would have to be what the New Testament calls the firstborn from the dead. In other words, he and he alone has conquered death. And since death is the cessation of physical life, he would have to be raised physically from the dead to have legitimately conquered death. And Jesus proves that that's true, you see, by this very simple act of eating, as well as showing them his hands and his feet and, and inviting them to touch him. All of that speaks to his physicality. It isn't just a spiritual resurrection. It's a physical resurrection. But there's something else that Jesus does, and we noticed it just a moment ago, but let's look at it again in verse 45. It says that he opened their minds so that they could understand the Scriptures. Now, that's fascinating because many people would say that to believe what the Scriptures say about Jesus is is closed-minded and that real open-mindedness is rejecting that Jesus is the only way to eternal life And uh, open-mindedness says that there are many ways to eternal life, people would say. There are many paths to God. That's what it looks like to be open-minded. But Jesus is saying the opposite here. He's saying that the instinctive posture of the human mind is closed-mindedness to truth. Theologians call this the noetic effect of the fall. Noetic coming from the Greek word nous, which means Mind, we are instinctively closed-minded to the truth of scriptures because of sin. But we justify, you see, we, we justify, we rationalize our closed-mindedness by calling it open-mindedness. And see, listen, I want to just speak to some of you who may be struggling with the idea of the resurrection. Maybe you don't believe in the resurrection at all. I want you to understand that if the resurrection happened, it is the single most important event in human history and the single most important thing for you to seek out the truth on. You can't say that you've come to a conclusion about the resurrection unless you've taken time to honestly examine the scriptures and the evidence for the resurrection. Aristotle once said, it is the mark of an educated mind to entertain a thought without accepting it. And I would ask you, have you really ever entertained the thought of the resurrection? You see, I'd like to suggest that perhaps some of you who are watching this are guilty of confirmation bias and groupthink yourselves. Like, you cherry-pick what you want to believe about the resurrection by only reading things or listening things that confirm uh, your prior beliefs. And some of you are guilty of groupthink because you're too afraid of being rejected by your friends, by the knowledge classes of our culture, by others who would tell you that you are closed-minded if you believe uh, in uh, the resurrection uh, of Jesus Christ. I quoted, uh, I quoted H.G. Wells earlier. Let me quote another great science fiction writer, Isaac Asimov. He said, he said one time, he said, your assumptions are your windows on the world. Scrub them off every once in a while or the light won't come in. And I would suggest to some of you that it is time to scrub off your assumptions and open your mind to the possibility of the resurrection. Because if it happened, there is nothing more significant in all of human history and nothing more significant for your life. 
Jesus says, the text says, open their minds by showing the disciples that everything in the scriptures, everything in the Old Testament, from the Passover to the temple to the feasts to the prophecies of the Old Testament about a great king who would also be a suffering servant, he opened their minds and he showed them that all of this was always pointing to him, to his death and to his resurrection. Jesus would, would have been saying to them, don't you see? Don't you see? That's all, all of that is me. That's all me. I, I fit the bill. I'm the great king and that suffering servant. And so in all of this, Jesus opened their minds so that they could understand all of human history had been pointing to him, to his miraculous birth, to his death on the cross, and his resurrection from the grave. And so the disciples move, they've moved from fake news to this is too good to be true, to this is true, this is actually true. But, but, that still doesn't explain how we got to this moment. Today, over 2,000 years later, with people all over the world today celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's still one more movement in this story. I want you to write this down. The movement is this. They move from this is true to this is world-changing, world-changing. Look at, look at verse 46. Then he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Now we know from the book of Acts in the New Testament that the disciples did indeed move from fake news to this is too good to be true to this is true to this, to this is world-changing. Jesus said that the revolution that he had begun by being raised from the dead was news that needed to go to all nations and that they, these 11 ordinary, scared men, would be his witnesses so that the message of the gospel could go to all nations. You see, here's the thing. Why would they have done that? Why would they have given up everything that they knew and loved? Why would they even give up their very lives to go forward, to preach, to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ? It's because once you see the truth of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead physically, the, the reality of the world and life comes into clearer focus, and I'll, I'll say it this way. The resurrection frees you from this world, but it also frees you for this world. So on the one hand, it frees you from this world, but it also frees you for this world. And here's what I mean. It frees you from this world in that you see that death is not final. There's life there's life beyond the grave where all of the sufferings of this life, all of the ravaging effects of age on your body will be removed. All of the mental illness, all of the physical disabilities that you live with will be gone. All of the brokenness and all of the disharmony of this world will be reversed and the earth will be restored to its original design. And you will be alive like never before. And not just some, not just some like 
you know, some immaterial spirit floating around in a cloud. The physical resurrection of Jesus means that you will have a restored body. You will eat, you will drink, you will run. And so, you see, once you understand this, whatever it is that you lose in this life, whatever you sacrifice in this life, whatever you don't get to do in this life, you will get to do in the next. That's how, it, that's how the resurrection frees you from this world. This isn't the only life that you will have. But the resurrection not only frees you from this world, it frees you for this world. And again, why would these 11 ordinary men be willing to give up everything they knew, including their very own lives, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ? And it's because they understood that the implications of the resurrection were world-changing global in their scope, and that it meant that their purpose in this life had changed from living for themselves today to living for the next life and bringing the hope and the healing of the gospel to all of the nations of this world and this life. And you see, that's why, that's why today over 2 billion people from all over the world claim Jesus as their Messiah. That's why you are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because the disciples moved from fake news to this is too good to be true to this is true. And finally, the understanding that this news is world-changing. That's why we celebrate today. That's why over 2 billion people today call Jesus their Lord and their Savior. I'll just close with this. If you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you too have been freed from this world so that you can be free to give your life away for the sake of this world, to bring the healing power of the gospel to this world. And you know, should the Lord tarry, for the world to still be celebrating the resurrection 2,000 years from now, it will take followers of Christ, like you and me, giving ourselves away for the sake of this world, to let them see and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ through our lives and through our words. Would you bow with me for prayer? Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we want to worship you this morning as the, as the one who has conquered death physically. We want to worship you as the one who gave your life for us, for our sins, and you were raised from the dead. Lord Jesus Christ, let us be people who understand the truth of the resurrection, but also the world-changing nature of the resurrection. Would you let that happen, Lord? Would you let us be those kinds of people so that we would be the kind of people who choose not to live just for this life, but live for the next life and who bring the healing power of the gospel to this world through our lives and through our words. And it is in the name of the risen Lord Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.